You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome to uh, to our journey through the Beatitudes. We are only two more Beatitudes after this. Yeah, only two after this, and then we're done. Um, we um, we are, we need to be reminded because it's good as we're on a journey to ask the question: Why are we on this journey? That the Beatitudes are a gift from God. They are taught by the smartest person who's ever lived. Um, Jesus Christ, and they are pictures. They are pictures of flourishing. What does our life look like when it is flourishing? What does it look like when we are in sync with Jesus and his kingdom? And so we've been walking through the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as a, as a sermon series, we're going to carry on right through the Sermon on the Mount all summer long. I don't know if you realize that. We're going to keep going. But for us, on Tuesday, we're going to stop at the Beatitudes. So, with your eyes focused on me, not on your Bible, Sebastian. With your eyes looking at me. Okay, I will read the first part of the Beatitude, and you will read, you will respond with the second part. Right? Now, I'm trusting you who do not have your cameras on, that you're, you're with me here. Okay, here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, let's just back up and just start again. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well done. Blessed are those who mourn. Very good. Blessed are the meek. Oh, good. I, I could read, David, I could read your lips there. You got that, man. Okay. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah, good. Blessed are the merciful. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. There we go. That's our tonight. tonight. Blessed are the peacemakers. Oh, we haven't got there yet. <laughs> blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God or sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It comes full, yeah, the sandwich. Yeah, very good. Okay, well, let's pray and we'll dive into tonight's. Lord, we, uh, we come before you and we recognize that we are completely dependent upon you. We bring nothing to the table. And so we're thankful for your grace. And we do pray that you would speak grace, speak truth into our hearts tonight. That this would not just be an exercise of learning things, but you would transform our hearts. That's our desire, and we lay these desires before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we go. The one we're going to be looking at tonight, the sixth beatitude, I think it has one of the most outstanding statements in all of Scripture. And it's one of those things, and I was talking to somebody about this last week. One of the dangers of, of when you study the Bible or you're familiar with the Bible is that what, um, 
is you get used to it. And, and, and just the, the staggering implications of what we're reading, you, you could easily miss out on. And so I've come across this beatitude a gazillion times. Blessed are the pure in heart for theirs is the, you know, for they shall see God, right? And I'm just like, oh yeah, of course. And then I thought about it. Wait a minute. What are they going to see? They shall see God? Brent, what you say? There's two guys in the, I don't know if they're wanting to come in here or where they're wanting to go. They're just in the hallway there. It yeah, just went around the corner. Anyhow, um, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so what I want to do is I want to ask you guys a question. Um, I'm going to have you break into your groups, into around your table, and you guys can uh, discuss this online. But when I say the words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, what feelings does this bring up in you? And what questions does it bring up in you? Okay. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. What, what feelings does this bring up and what questions does it bring up? I'm just going to give you a minute to discuss this. All right, go. So let me ask you this. What, uh, what feelings come to the surface when you hear this beatitude? Yeah, right. Guilt. Yeah, that's what one guy just said. You know, how do I make my heart pure? Yeah. Guilt. Yeah, it gives you pause. It's like, well, pure in heart. All right, Josh, it better be interesting. It better be, it better be profound. Come on, Josh, what do you got? <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, that would be the implication, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else? Like, what questions show up in this? We've touched on some. Gerda? Well, it is overwhelming, and, and it's amazing how quickly it rolls off our lips to say, and, and they shall see God. We're talking about something that's, I don't know about you, but when I read this, when I read this, I feel at the same time a sense of awe. I feel a tremendous sense of inadequacy and not a small amount of fear. I mean, two obvious questions emerge out of this beatitude. One, how can I ever be pure in heart or pure enough to see God anyway? And secondly, what would it be like to see God? Now, lots of ink has been spilled. Oh, yeah, lots of ink has been spilled over this particular beatitude. What does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it mean to see God? Do I see God? Does that mean, do I really see, like with my eyes? With my physical eyes? So face to face? Um, I don't know if we're ever going to be fully plumb 
the depths of what Jesus is teaching, what are we saying that we will see God? I mean, because we read, we read, and you know, um, many of you know the passage. There's a passage in Exodus 33, right? In verse 20 that says this, but, but God said, you, sh- you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Right? And yet, and yet, we read back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 32, verse 30, we read these words. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So there's a mystery that that we're exploring here tonight. So let's dive into this mystery together. I think this will be, I think it'll be fun. First off, we need to see, ask the question. This is a standard question. How does this beatitude connect with the other beatitudes, right? This is always an important part of our our process. We need to see how they fit together. And so the first question that comes to mind, and this is a real puzzler for me, is why does this beatitude show up here? Because you would think, like I, I write sermons. I know how to structure sermons. I know how to have a punch at the beginning or at the end. You know, if you're doing a sermon and you're wanting maximum punch, you're gonna, it's gonna be your lead beatitude, isn't it? Blessed are those who are pure in heart, or they shall see God. Okay, I got everybody's. I mean, that's huge. Or, or at the very end, when you get to all done the beatitudes, it's like, and yet one more thing you need to know. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for you shall see God. Like, wouldn't that that would be a great way to kind of end off the beatitudes? Or you could say, you know, structurally, maybe to have this beatitude smack dab in the middle, and it points out to the fact that this is the linchpin, this is the center point of the beatitude, but it's not. It's not the beginning, not the end. It's it's like, what is number six? And so it's strange. Why do we find it where we find it? Well, one way to understand this mystery is to look to see how the beatitudes, I think, are themed. Some commentators point out how the first three Beatitudes, the first three Beatitudes, um, are concerned with our need. We need we need to be poor in spirit, recognize we do not measure up. We need to be those who mourn. Or my heart is a mess. I look at the world. The world is a mess. Something needs to change. Uh, we need to be meek. We need to have a true self-understanding of ourself and God. And all these three things point to a need, our need before God. And then comes a great satisfaction. And the great satisfaction is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you remember, is all about being in right relatedness with God. Four dimensions, right with God right with our neighbor, right with ourself, and right with creation. And from here, once we're in in this right relationship, then we see, okay, what does it mean then to be filled? What does the satisfaction look like? Well, 
we become merciful. This is one of the implications. We become merciful. We become pure in heart. We become, we'll look at this next week, peacemakers. And yet the result of all this is the world's not going to be super happy and we'll be persecuted as a result. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, in the first three Beatitudes, we're going up one side of the mountain when we reach the summit in the fourth, and then we come down on the other side. Okay, so that's one way to look at it. The other thing to remember, and this is key, and you know this, is that um, one of the central themes of the Beatitudes, the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, I would say the central theme in the Bible, is that it is an issue of the heart. Our hearts matter. Jesus has a lot to say about living from the core versus looking good on the outside, doesn't he? And one of the themes Jesus is saying is asking the question, what drives you? And again, this runs throughout all scripture. David's cry, create in me a clean heart. Solomon's cry in Proverbs, above all, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And Jesus, Jesus addresses matters of the heart. So brings us back to our beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. What in the world does this mean? Well, a few things to notice. One, Jesus says, does not say, blessed are the really smart. He doesn't say, blessed are the brainiacs. So he starts with the heart, not the head. Now, you have to get hear me on this. Issues of the mind, issues of doctrine do matter. They really do matter. But what matters the most, in the immortal words of Rick Springfield, is the state of the heart. For your only head, we get that one. <laughs> the state of the heart. Our faith is not about intellectual assent. <laughs> Over the years, it's become that way, right? It's become more and more about what you believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? And, and believing rightly is, is all you need. To the point, and I think I shared this, there was a bishop in the 1760s, Bishop of York, who went into a church service. And the pastor is preaching on being born again. And the bishop chewed him out. And he says, what are you doing? He says, why are you panting about new births? You would be far better off to teach the wisdom of Plato and Socrates. This was a bishop of York saying you, you're much better teaching philosophy than talking about this change of heart. And that was an issue for the students of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the seminary in Finkenwald where he has all these seminary students who are used to just using their head. And, you know, they were immersed in German liberalism, German theology. And Bonhoeffer, while he's there, teaches them the Sermon on the Mount. And he gave them spiritual practices to do every day. And nobody knew what to do. They, they just, it just threw them off. And so blessed are the pure in heart. So first thing to notice is heart, not head. Secondly, it's heart and not action. Now, again, don't mishear me. How we live our lives matters, right? 
how we live our life matters. But here's a danger. And we've talked about this so many times. You and I can do all the right things, but our hearts could be a mile away from God. You could do all the right things and your heart could have nothing to do with God. And that was an issue uh, with the Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus's day. And, and, and Jesus says, you know, the, Jesus has some, some pretty interesting words um, about those who live external lives and not have their hearts changed. In Luke chapter 11, what does he say? He says, now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and uh, mint and ruin every herb and neglect justice and the love of God, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and the people walk over them without knowing it. My God. And he keeps going. He says, woe to you, because you're all show. You're all form, but no content. You're all style, but no substance. And Jesus goes after that, because he says, you know what? It's not... It's not primarily about action. Action without heart is just like a. Well, I think did, did Sam do this on the? I wasn't there on the weekend. Did he have a a, a cup? Yeah, we well, had the you know the old cup was all gunky on the inside, and you clean the outside, and it looks nice on the outside, but the inside's still gross. And so the danger of the Christian life, and we'll come back to this again and again, is that you could look the part. You could look the part of a Christian as one who is pure in heart without having the awkward requirement of actually having a heart for your neighbor or being poor in spirit or mourning for the sins of the world. And you know what the danger is? Nobody would know. You could be at church for years. Hey, you could become an elder. And everybody would look at you and say, oh, what a godly man. Oh, what a godly woman. And you just looked apart. And I've said this before, but there's no better hiding place from God than the church. Because nobody would suspect it, right? So Christianity is not ultimately about the mind, though the mind matters. It's not ultimately about right action, though how we live does matter. So what in the world does heart mean? <laughs> what does heart mean? Well, in the Bible, the heart stands. It stands at the center of our will and affections. That's what the Bible, and in the Bible, that's what the heart means. Um, the heart is what leads us to make key decisions in life. It affects everything in life. And so as our heart goes, so does our life. And the heart stands in contrast to the idea that we can look clean and righteous on the outside, but be a mess in the heart. And so in the Bible, you have to get this. The heart is not about primarily about your feelings. That's what it means in our culture, right? Oh, 
I love you with all my heart. I give you my heart. You stepped on my heart. You know, don't go breaking my heart. You know, I mean, you just go on and on and on. Like this, it's always about the heart, right? But the heart is a, is about feelings, right? But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the heart is. The heart is the center of one's personality. Um, the heart encompasses the emotions, the mind, and the will. Now, there's an old word that used to be used to describe this. And do you know what the word is? Your affections. Your affections. Now, again, there's a word. Oh, I have such deep affection for you. What do we mean? Oh, I love you. I have feelings. No, 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 no. Prior to the 18th century, affections was not about feelings. In fact, I won't go through the historical story, though it's super interesting. You have to know. <laughs> uh, but there is a story in the, in the uh, intellectual history as to how the head and the heart got divided. It's influenced by a guy named Descartes, but also influenced by this period in time called the Enlightenment where you have a separation of your brain and your heart, right? But in the 18th century and prior to that, there was no such separation. It was just your affections. It was your whole being, which included your feelings. It included your thoughts. And so Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century wrote what I think is one of the most important books for any Christian to read, Religious Affections. Um, and it's not about, oh, well, how do I feel about faith? It's about your head and your heart working in tandem. Anyhow, the heart biblically is the center of one's, one's being and personality. It's the fount out of which everything comes. And so blessed are the pure in heart points to those who are pure, not just on the surface, not just in a particular way, but they're pure in their entire being, in their core. But this is going to lead us into a bit of a problem. Because the Bible also says, yes, the heart is the core of your whole being. But the Bible also says, you know what? Our hearts are in a bit of a mess. Um, what does Jesus say in Matthew 15? He says, out of the heart proceeds what? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. In our culture today, we say, where's all the problems come? The problem comes from a lack of education or the wrong environment. And that if you change education, then the person will, will, will change. Now, I do think if you change education, it makes a difference for sure. People say, well, if I change my environments, if I leave, you know, if I leave, I was going to say, I'll use that. If I leave Toronto and I move to Vancouver, I'll be in a better environment. And most people would say, yes, it's true. Um, and then if I change my environment, things will be better. But again, as, as my dear colleague Brad, my dear friend Brad says, Brad Strelaw, he says, the problem with going places is that you have to take yourself with you. And if the issue is with your heart, guess what? Your heart's now just in Vancouver. <laughs> you got the same problem, right? And so the issue is the heart. I mean, you think about it. Eden was a good environment, but humanity still rebelled against God. And so it's out of the heart that these problems arise. And the Bible and 2,000 years of church history or history will tell us this. 
In fact, uh, one guy, G.K. Chesterton, says, he says, you know, this issue of the heart, original sin, he says, it's the most empirically verifiable doctrine in the Bible. <laughs> he goes, you just look outside your windows like, yeah, there's something wrong with the heart. It's not hard to see. And what does Jeremiah, the prophet, say? The heart is what? Yeah, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Uh, the Puritans knew this. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, today, I, I got a whole bunch of books. Um, a friend of mine, uh, they're giving away their library. And so I, I was able to pick through and grab. I mean, it's, it's close to a picture of heaven for me to be able to go through and just pick whatever book I wanted. I put into a box. But I came back to the church with a big box of books. And we have a lot of young staff, right, who don't have libraries. Built up. So I put all the books on the table and I say, here, my little chickens, you know, go take, take whatever book you want. And I say, you should get this book. Oh, do you have this one? You should get this one. And to their credit, and I love our staff because the staff says, we want these books and they want to read them. So they, they were all gone. Well, one of the books that I had difficulty getting away, giving away was a three volume Puritan treatment on Ephesians 6, three volumes on Ephesians 6. Uh, and it's actually a classic. It's really good. I said, you should read this. And like, I said, what's it on? I said, Ephesians 6. Just Ephesians 6? Well, yes. The Puritans, they, they drilled down, right? And so one of the books by John Owen is about this thick, and it's on the mortification of sin. And only a Puritan would ever, when they're preaching, use the words 64thly. Yeah. There is a sermon by Richard Baxter where he says, and 64thly, people worry with my five points. They have 64 points, right? But the issue is the heart. But this is a problem. If our heart is messed up, right? Our hearts are messed up. The Bible teaches us our hearts are messed up. You look out in the world, our hearts are messed up. So now here's a dilemma. We've just established that the heart of humanity's problem is a heart. And if that's the case, how in God's name could we ever be pure in heart and see God? If the issue is the heart, and Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, and yet by default, the issue that we face is our hearts, how can we ever get, how can we ever live into this beatitude? And it gets even more complicated because we look at, well, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Let's look at the word that, that's, that's used here. What does the word pure mean? The interesting word, it's the word catharsis uh, is where we get the word cathartic, right? And it means a number of things. One, it means to be clean, right? It means to be pure means to be clean. It's like having soiled clothes that are washed clean, or it's like the difference between um, real maple syrup and Walmart sugary syrup or whatever they call it. Um, that's the difference. Um, to be pure means to be without hypocrisy. It means to be single-minded, single-hearted. The, the purpose of the heart corresponds to singleness. It means without folds. It's without hiddenness. It is a sincere heart. And the issue that we face is a divided heart. The divided heart is a, is a, 
is, is the heart that says, you know what, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to be known by you. And at the same time, I want to binge on Netflix tonight, watching a series that I've watched three times already. That's a divided heart. The pure in heart are no longer divided. And so our hearts cry, with, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, is, Lord, make my heart one. Make it single. Take out all the pleats and the folds. Let it be whole. Let it be one. Let it be sincere. Let it be entirely free from any hypocrisy. And so to be pure means to be, also means to be tried and tested. It's like um, um, corn that has been winnowed, uh, sifted, and cleansed of the chaff. Um, it's a term that's used for uh, um, an, an army or a group of soldiers that have been battle tested and they're ready. And finally, it means without defilement. And when we read in Revelation that nothing clean or impure can enter the kingdom of heaven. So it means to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But now we're stuck. <laughs> Because when I see that, when I see those definitions, I don't know about you, but it seems being pure of heart seems way out of reach. And if pure purity of heart is way out of reach, then, then will I ever be able to see God? But I want to see God. Well, I mean, this is now you know. If you've been taking this class for a while, or if you've taken my classes, you know that the answer at this stage is not to say, all right, what can I do on my own strength to get pure in heart? Right? You know that. Because if you try it on your own, what happens? You're toast. You are toast. You could try your very best to be pure in heart, but you know what happens? When you try to be pure in heart on your own, you fall into at least two ditches. The first ditch is you say, okay, to be pure in heart, forget it. I'm just going to withdraw from anything out there that may contaminate me. I'm going to become a monk. I'm going to become a nun. I'm going, or I'll just be one of those Christians that only listens to Christian music and only wears Christian clothes and Christian, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Did I ever tell you, I used to work in a Christian bookstore down in, in Omaha. And I used to work in the music section. And I was a new Christian. And I just look at all these bands. I'd never heard of any of these bands. And I'm like, you know, who are these Christian bands? I didn't, I didn't know there was so much Christian music. I just like, look at all of them, right? And um, I'm like, what kind of music is this? <laughs> and underneath each, each description, did I ever tell you this? Under each description, it'd be like, you'll like this band if you like Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> you'll like this band if you like Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so they're all like Christian, like Christianized versions of these. Anyhow. So, I mean, that's what you could do. You can make yourself into a Christian bubble. You can wear Christian t-shirts, cheesy Christian t-shirts. You know, I work out at God's gym. I've seen that one. Um, you know, you, you could, or, or uh, Bloodweiser. No, Godweiser, this blood's for you. Oh, if only I were making this up. Uh, it's true. Um, but that's one of the options. It's like, I want to 
hide myself from this. So I'm going to withdraw from society and just get myself into a little bit of a bubble. Problem is, you still got your heart with you, right? And all those people in the bubble, they still have their hearts and our hearts are a mess, right? Um, I won't tell you, there was, Eugene Peterson made a really interesting comment. He was talking to nuns and he talked to a mother superior. And he says, wow, that's, that's quite the life. I mean, you guys are just cloistered. You pray all day and you worship. And, and Eugene Peterson that, that said that he's, he's quite a well-known biblical thinker. Eugene Peterson he passed away a few years ago. He says, that just sounds amazing. Just you and God and in this community. And the mother superior said, have you ever been in a house that's filled with 60 or 70 women? And then she said something else that I won't repeat because it's free put She says, yeah, some of, the, some of these women can be quite difficult. Let me just put it this way. Yeah. So that's one of the options is we withdraw, but that doesn't really work. The other thing is we go into self-righteousness. That means I'm going to be pure. I don't have to be really pure. I just need to be purer than you, right? And so, or I need to look pure and I need to be purer than the person next to me. So I'll fake it, but it's useless, right? So we're back to the dilemma. Here's our dilemma. To see God, we need to be pure and holy. Holiness is a pure heart, an unmixed condition of being, of being, a singularity of heart and mind. Nothing less than the whole person is required. It's not just my mind. It's not just my heart. It's my whole being. Only those who are like God can see him, but we cannot purify our hearts. So how do we get out of this puzzle? Well, one of the ways we get out of the puzzle is we turn towards Jesus. And rather than getting Jesus, I have been here getting Jesus. I think a better way to put it is allow Jesus to get us. And this is what the Bible says when it, when it describes us being in Christ. Peter Kreef puts it this way. We attain purity of heart, not merely by the imitation of Christ, but by the incorporation into Christ, the Christ who has perfect purity of heart. And so one of the things we need to do to make our way forward in this is we need to recognize that we cannot become pure in heart on our own. It is God alone who can do it. And the good news is that he has done it through the cross. Because on the cross, when we put our faith in Jesus, we have been forgiven, but we also get, need to get this. We've been set apart. And what's the other word for set apart? Holy. And nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ. That we've been washed clean. We are new creations. And so one of the things that God promises us is that he will do it. He will do all the work in transforming us. He will make us by the work of the Holy Spirit, become the people who, by grace, we already are. Do you hear me say that again? By the work of the Holy Spirit, we become the people who we already are by God's grace. 
Because of the cross, when we put our faith in Jesus, we've been reconciled to the Father. We're adopted sons and daughters. God looks at us as holy and blameless, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so we are pure in his sight. And the goal of the Christian life is to, live, is, is to become who we already are. You guys know this, right? This is the gospel. This is why the cross exists. If you don't get this, you're in trouble. Because without the cross, and it's, I'm going to try really hard to become holy. And we can never do that. We've already been rescued. And our goal, the, 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 the Christian life, is living this out. And this is the work of the Spirit in our lives. Um, it's, 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 it's what Paul says. He says, he who began a good work in you will, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And because of God's work in my life, I become more and more conformed to Christ. Now, does that mean I'm just passive? Oh, God, you can do whatever you want to me while I watch Netflix. No. James teaches us, draw near to God and what? And he'll draw near to you. I cannot clean my heart, but I can still posture myself to allow God to work in my life, to clean the gutters of my life. As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, he says, I must do everything I can and still know it's not enough. <laughs> and that's that. I love that. I must do everything that I can, but no, it's not enough. That he must do it, finally. And so the Christian life is to live in response to who we, by grace, already are. And so being pure in heart does not mean we separate ourselves into monasteries and, and, and cloister ourselves. No, I mean, because what does Jesus do? Does Jesus cloister himself? No, he's, he's interacting with all sorts of people from all different walks of life. We are called to become a purifying force. As we, have, as we are being purified, we can turn around and, and work with other people. Now, what's the, there's a way to explain that. What's another way of, of, of purifying? We can become kind of like salt. Or, or, you know, where there's darkness, we could become, what's the other? We could become light. And now, is it interesting? Like right after the Beatitudes, what does Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth, right? You are the light of this world. It comes right after the Beatitudes. And that's as far, I've got to the end of that. That's how far I've memorized so far. I've kind of run into a, a wall, but I'm, I'm working on it. And E. Stanley Jones, he offers a good analogy. He says, we're to become water. He says, we're like water. He says, but if we're just water, it's like, we just want to be pure water. We just want to be pure water. And we're just going to stay still as pure beings. Well, what happens to water when it stays still for a long period of time? It becomes stagnant. And what kind of water is described in the Bible? Living water. Remember Pastor Mark would often talk about that? He talked about living water, which is moving water. Water that is moving. And so that's a picture of purity. It's, it's moving. We're on the move. If you say, I'm going to be pure and just stay by myself, and then you become you know, full of mosquitoes and stagnant kind of stuff, right? There's a great story that uh, on um, 
Well, actually, I should ask. Did, did, did Sam talk about St. Francis? He better not talk about St. Francis. So usually whenever I'm preaching, or whenever I'm teaching, I talk to Sam. If he's preaching, I'm like, okay, are you going to use this story? Yeah. I said, no, don't use it. I'm using it. <laughs> but it's the story of St. Francis, 12th century. Um, St. Francis, uh, he, he, he's a... Um, He's like a monk kind of thing. He's a friend. His followers become Franciscans. Um, Francis noted that his, his buddy uh, Leo was feeling quite down and even depressed. And so Francis asks him, he says, Leo, do you know what it means to be pure of heart? Of course, said Leo. It means to have no sins, faults, or weaknesses to reproach myself for. Ah, says Francis. Now I understand why you're sad. We will always have something to reproach ourselves for. Right, said Leo. Well, that's why despair of ever arriving at purity of heart. Francis says, listen, Leo, listen to me. Listen carefully. Do not be so preoccupied with the purity of your heart. Turn and look at Jesus. Admire him. Rejoice that he is what he is your brother, your friend, your Lord, your savior. That little brother is what it means to be pure of heart. And once you've turned to Jesus, don't turn back and look at yourself. Don't wonder where you stand with him because you're, 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 you're okay with him. And you know, the sadness, he says, the sadness of not being perfect, this discovery that you're really sinful, is a feeling much too human. It even borders on idolatry. Focus your vision outside yourself on the beauty, graciousness, and compassion of Jesus Christ. The pure of heart, you want to know what the pure of heart are? Pure of heart praise him from sunrise to sundown. Even when they feel broken, feeble, distracted, insecure, and uncertain, they're able to release it into his peace. And a heart that is stripped and filled, stripped of self and filled with the fullness of God. Well, it is enough that Jesus is Lord. Isn't that cool? Blessed are the pure in heart. And then what's the next part say? For they shall see God. Now, what does that mean? They shall see God. So I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. So <laughs> we get funny requests from all over the place for people to use our church. And so Paul, our, uh, my colleague, told me the story last week. He says there was a group that, wants, that wanted to rent our church. and But they're a group that um, I, I guess they specialize in and maybe like psychedelic experiences that you can have, like, you know, kind of. And so they wanted to have this event where they, they bring in special tea that you drink. And I'm assuming some mama from brownies as well. I don't know. But, you know, when you have it, you're going to have, you're going to see God. You're going to get into one of those states where you're going to see God. And, and I don't know if back in the 70s and the 80s, one of the big writers of the time was a guy named Carlos Castaneda. I don't know if you ever remember you, and he would talk about, you know, taking magic mushrooms as a way of and cultivating this way to see God. So also say, we told this group, no, you cannot use our church. Um, 
But a lot of people think, well, what can I do in order to have this experience where I see God? So what does it mean to see God? Does it mean that we will actually see him like with, like with our resurrected eyes, maybe? Scriptures, it's, it's, it's not entirely clear, but there is something there. Let's see what it says. The problem is, is we're dealing with God. And our, 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 our minds will often make God too small. And I love what uh, Daryl Johnson, I heard Daryl Johnson talk about this one time. He says one of the things he does is he lies, sometimes he lies in his bed at night and he closes his eyes. And he thinks about God. And he thinks about himself lying in bed in his house. And he thinks about his house in Burnaby. And he thinks about Burnaby in the Lower Mainland. And he starts going up. And he thinks of the Lower Mainland in BC, BC within Canada, Canada within North America, North America on this planet, this planet next to these other planets, and goes up and up and, and the planets get smaller and smaller and it goes from galaxy to galaxy to throughout the universe past black holes and 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 then he just thinks how big this universe is and how small he is and what he says is it evokes a question you know what the question is what are you god not who are you what like because I, the challenge we have is as Christians, I'll, I'll speak for myself. The challenge that I have is my God is way too small. He's way too small. I mean, God is a God of the universe. And so he'll do that as an exercise of imagination to remind him just how great and how powerful and how big God is. And so here we are. We're told that we will see God. We will see God. So how does this play out? Well, I think, I think in two parts, and we've seen this before, I think we, we can see God in part now. And as Christians, and I know this sounds politically incorrect, but as Christians, we can see God like nobody else can. We can. We can see him in creation. We can see him in the events of history. We can see him in the sacraments. In baptism and communion. Um, we also see him in the sense of, of, of knowing him and experiencing his presence, experiencing his comfort, knowing that he is near. We, we are seeing him who is invisible, but we experience his amazing grace towards us. We can experience him because we've been given his very presence, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who gives us a taste of the things of God. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, it makes Jesus more clear. He helps us to recall Jesus' teachings and how to apply the teachings of Scripture to our lives. But the other way we can see God is, we again, we can see God in creation. What does Psalm 19 say? 
the heavens declare the glory of God, right? We can see it. There's a, um, a, an old poem from the 19th century by uh, Gerald Manley Hopkins that says, the world is charged, I love that, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from the ship foil. It gathers to a greatness like ooze of oil. Crushed, why do men not now uh, now not wreck its rod? Generations of trod, of trod, of trod, and all is seared in trade with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and it wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And yet for all this, nature's never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, O morning at the brown brink eastward springs because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah bright wings. He's saying despite our best attempts to pollute this world, you still will see a sunrise and you'll still go hiking along Bunsen Lake with your dog Willow and and, and you'll see, you'll see things, right? And you'll experience the presence of God. And I think part of our challenge is, is to pay attention to God in our day-to-day -day life. So one of my, uh, one of my favorite books is a book that you probably haven't heard of before. It's a book called At the Back of the North Wind. Has anybody heard of that one by George MacDonald? I knew, Lori, you would have your hand up. Have you read it, right? Yeah. 19th century um, writer, George MacDonald, huge influence on C.S. Lewis. Have you read that, Gene? Yeah. Um, and so just as an aside, it was a book that I've always wanted a nice copy of. And it was on my mind. I was going to tell you a little bit about the story tonight. And then this past week, I thought, I, gotta, I was just looking online, trying to find a good copy. I found a nice copy, but it was like $140. I'm like, I like George McDonald, but not that much. Um, and so there's West Sky Books in Port Coquitlam. It's the only bookstore, used bookstore in the Tri-Cities. Uh, so I went over there. I walked in and I said, uh, you guys got any George McDonald books? And the guy said, no, no, we don't. I said, really? And then the other uh, his, his colleague said, oh, no, look back in the kids section. So I went back there. It's kind of funny because he had his hands on the books. He says, I'm not sure if we do. I'm like, yeah, it's right by your hand. And I said, and what a copy. And it was this beautiful 1919 edition illustrated of At the Back of the North Wind. And I opened it up like, oh, but it was $50. I'm like, oh, $50. But then I had a credit. So it was all God's grace. I had a credit. <laughs> and I got, I got the book anyhow. It's, so the book is so, so interesting because George MacDonald was considered, I mean, I can tell you, I'll do a whole session on George MacDonald. He's, he's quite an interesting guy. He was influential on Lewis Carroll, uh, who wrote um, um, Alice in Wonderland. Um, he was encouraged to write that and, and to publish it because of the McDonald family. And uh, George McDonald, um, it just, he was a pastor and just a really warm heart. 
he writes this book at the back of the North Wind. And what makes the book so interesting in, in light of our conversation tonight is this, is that it's a story with two levels of reality taking place. So it's a little complicated, it's a little strange. It's a story of a boy named Little Diamond and his encounter of the North Wind, who's this personified as this woman, long black hair and just and changing shapes and sizes as the wind blows and gets stronger or smaller. And, um, and he's encountering the North Wind all throughout this story. And there's lots of things that take on in the story. And on that level of a story, it's quite spiritual and it's quite powerful. But there's another level of the story, and that's the story of what everybody's seeing. And what they're seeing is a boy getting sicker and sicker and sicker. But the boy doesn't see that. And the boy actually goes at the back of the north wind, which is the picture of heaven. And he's fine. Now, on the, on the human level, he's, he's probably in a coma or something like that. They think he's, he's dying. And he comes back and he says, oh, the music I heard. He says, I can't, I can't recall, but whenever I hear a certain song, I hear an echo of that tune. Oh, the land that I lived in. It was so beautiful. I, did, I, I can't quite describe it, but I get little echoes of it here. And it reminds me of that place where I was. And that's how the story progresses. I won't tell you the end of the story, how it, how it ends, but it's, it's just this beautiful story. But what it does is it reminds us that there's, mul there's multiple levels of seeing things. And there's a whole spiritual dimension to our lives that is easily missed. And... And we know it, and I'll tell you for myself, like one of the reasons why I was ready to turn my life to Jesus was my heart was prepared. My, my imagination was baptized. You see, as Lewis, is, Lewis read McDonald when he was younger, and he says, and, Lew, and McDonald baptized his imagination. That's what Lewis says. My imagination was baptized by Tolkien by reading J.R. Tolkien. And so when I started thinking about that land that I've never been to, but I long to be, or that song that I haven't quite heard, but I, I feel it, like those moments of transcendence that I experience in life, and we all experience in life, it prepared my heart for the gospel. And that's what Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks about this. I, have a, a, I won't read the whole thing, but in The Weight of Glory, he talks about this. He says, um, he says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. If we trust to them, it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was the longing. So he's talking about certain books or certain music that evoked this longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart of the, of the worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not never yet visited. Isn't that cool? And so what Lewis is describing is what is called sensuk, 
which is this longing for home. And it's always had deep resonance. But in this longing for home, and if we pay attention, we can see God. And so we get little hints of it now, or big hints. But there will come a day where we will, where we will see much more clearly. What does it say in Revelation? Revelation chapter 21, right at the very end of the Bible. What does it teach us? Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. In verse 3, then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. In chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any, anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And what does verse 4 say? They will see his face. They will see his face. And 1 Corinthians teaches us, now we see through a glass darkly, right? And then we shall see face to face. And uh, John teaches us, beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, I would say if we truly believe this, if I truly believe this, I think it would change my life. It would revolutionize my life. You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of Kings. That you and I will one day stand before the King of Kings, the author of the universe. Oh, my. It's no, it's no wonder uh, that we're told to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. <laughs> One of my favorite songs, I know it's kind of an older song, but do you guys remember that, uh, that song, I Can Only Imagine? Yeah, I mean, that was by Mercy Me. Uh, that one's always stirred my heart because he's, he's, I can only imagine. He's, he doesn't know, he's a, but he's speculating. And, and that's what Richard Baxter, he, would, he says, you know, as Christians, we need to contemplate contemplate heaven every day so we can be of some earthly good you and i will see god i mean people are excited to see taylor swift they're going to spend on average two thousand dollars a ticket apparently but that's nothing compared to the free gift of seeing god so how do we prepare to see god well, I'm going to, oh, what time is it? Yeah, we got a few minutes. I'm going to get let you guys talk around your tables just for a moment. And you guys can do this online. Is what are some ways, without reading ahead in your notes, what are some ways that you can remind yourself of God's presence in your day-to-day -day life? So let me just pause it. You guys chat about this, okay? Okay, what are some ways that you can practice the presence of God or, or, or cultivate an awareness of his presence to see him? Any, any thoughts? 
The question, I have to remember the question, yes. Uh, what are some ways that we can cultivate um, unawareness or to seek his uh, seek his presence, God's presence in our day-to-day? -day? Talk to him, yeah. So, so while you're walking, you just talk to him. Somebody was saying, yeah, but that's where I talk to him. Yeah. If I walk over here in London Park and I'm walking through the forest and say, that is a neat tree. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. Well, well, you know, the cool part is, is that you can walk in the park and talk to God and now nobody will think you're crazy because they just think, yeah, just put your ear pod in. Is that not just talking to, talking to my friends? Yeah. 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 But now it's just sort of like, no, I got it on speakerphone. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Tell that's right just say yeah and and that's the thing you could you could sing praises right i i remember when um i've shared this before but when i became a christian i just wanted to sing praise songs but i only knew christmas carols and so I, I did like and i only knew the first verse of every christmas carol but i was riding my bike in shanghai singing oh come all you faithful uh, at the top, I didn't care. I have no idea. Yeah, but yeah, there's something in, in you that, and it, it stirs a heart. And what you sing makes a difference. Like I remember, I don't know. I remember driving in the car and I had the radio on. And I'm like, oh, here's a great tune. And it was, um, it was ACDC's Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. And I'm, and I'm just singing along. I'm like, wait a minute, what am I singing? <laughs> like, and but what you sing also affects you, right? It really does. Well, I mean, some of the ways you can um, cultivate this is is this practice of examine. We talked about this, and this is kind of looking back at your day and asking yourself some questions. You know, what am I grateful for this day? And a number of the guys online, you guys talked about that um, gratitude. Um, review your day. Ask God uh, for the light to see to see yourself and to see. Yourself as God sees you, right? Where did you experience joy this past day? Where did you experience resistance in your heart? And then respond in prayer. The other thing is just to incorporate um, liturgies of the ordinary. And I, we've talked about this before, but I want to point out a book. I just showed a, the, to, uh, to our friends online. And it's this book called Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. And in it, she just talks about incorporating, you know, practicing the presence of God in the ordinary stuff of life. So here's some of the chapter titles. Waking. Making the bed. Brushing my teeth. Actually, when I was in England, we, I went to this place called Labrie in England, and we read the chapter on brushing your teeth, the liturgy of brushing your teeth. It was, it was, it was quite good. Losing keys. The liturgy of losing keys. Some of you are you're all over that liturgy. I know that. Um, eating leftovers, fighting with my husband, <laughs> checking email, sitting in traffic, calling a friend, drinking tea, sleeping. Yeah, it's all. 
The other thing we can do is we orient our, our lives for the end. If our lives are directed towards seeing God's face, if that is the telos, the destiny of our lives, then how much of our life should be spent preparing for that moment? Right? And how much, and when we, if we don't have the face of God as the destiny of our lives, if that's not on our mind, then how do we live our lives? How, how are our lives oriented? So this is what a guy named Hans Borzema, he's writing about this guy, this guy who lived in the fourth century. He said, when such infinite desire is directed away from its proper telos, the destiny of the vision of God in Christ, the objects of desire inevitably end up holding their imminent sway over human existence in frightening ways, holding us in a form of bondage that ironically we have willed into existence by our own misshapen desires. If, we're, if our goal is not to fix our eyes upon God, if our lives are not oriented that way, then what are they going to be oriented on? Where are there, our eyes going to be fixed? Wherever it's fixed, if it's not God, these things are going to become idols and going to do a number on us. So let me leave you for some final thoughts on what it means to see God. I wrote down, I said, there's four dimensions. I'm drawing this from a guy, Hans Borsma, in his book, Seeing God. There are four dimensions to seeing God. First, it begins with the reality that God sees you and cares for you. Right? That's our starting point. He sees, he is, and I love that. Isn't it, um, is it the story of Hagar? In, in, in book of Genesis, he says, he is a God who sees me. He's a God who sees, yeah. We don't initiate our seeing God, but God reveals himself to us. Every good and perfect thing comes from the Father of lights. And in God's light, do we see light? So it begins with the fact that God is always on the front foot. Secondly, there's a trajectory to the Christian life. Now, this is the way this guy puts it. He says, all of life is God teaching us to behold him in the end. So the fact that at the very end, we are going to see God, all of life is, is, is learning to be ready for that moment. We are God's apprentices, and the goal of life is learning to see him. And the history of salvation and our own, personal, our own personal pilgrimage are God's training us to see him. And so we need to train ourselves to see him in all the things of life. In nature, in love, in the baby's birth, in kindness, um, in friendship. And, and one guy, Irenaeus, a, a, a church father, he says, he says, all of scripture and the entire Christian life is teaching us to grow accustomed to beholding the face of God. He's getting us ready. In, in some ways, it's all of life is, is preparing us to have for the right 
type of sunglasses that we can behold his glory. In many ways, the Christian life is preparing us to stare directly into the sun. Thirdly, Jesus stands at the center of this vision. When we see Jesus, we see God. Since the Father and the Son are one, there's no sense looking for the Father behind the Son. That was the uh, disciples' error. They said, you know, show us the Father and we'll be okay. And Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, you know, when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, is that not the issue? Because Jesus is teaching them. He's teaching them, and people are listening, and some people are walking away, some people are turning their back. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he says, your hearts need to be ready to see me. I'm the one that your hearts are longing for. Our resurrection means that we will see God with our own eyes, and oh, what eyes we will have. And finally, in seeing God, we will become like God. As we grow in our knowledge and vision of who God is and how active he is in our world, our lives are changed. And I love, I love Jacob in the book of Genesis because Jacob is the one, he's on the run, he's scared, he, has, he falls asleep in this place called No Place, in the middle of nowhere, sees angels, he sees God, the ladder to heaven, and he wakes up in the morning and he says, Surely God was in this place and it wasn't even aware of it. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to a glory to another. And in many ways, all at the end of all things, everything returns to God. All creation comes from God out of his love. And in the end, we all return to God and we behold him. And do you, do you, do you know what that vision is called? Does anybody know? You ever heard of it? So it's called the beatific vision where we will behold God. We will see God's face. And you have to get this because in Christianity, this is where we differ from Buddhism and from Hinduism. Because Hinduism says all things go back to God, but we disappear. It's like this big ocean of, of, of godness and our individuality is like a little drop of water gets dropped into the great oneness of all. But that's not the Christian vision. The Christian vision is when we behold God, we become more ourselves. We become fully ourselves and we flourish as the people that God has created us to be. And so all of life is being prepared for you and I to see God. And God in his grace is preparing you to see him. And our challenge is to prepare our hearts to see him. To finish well. And to cultivate, to cultivate a heart that when we behold God, we will weep with joy. Because the fact of the matter is, what would we read in Philippians too? The fact of the matter is that every person will bow before the sun. We will look at the sun. 
And it will either be an experience of deep love and recognition, or it will be a moment of sheer terror. Only the pure in heart will see God. And my desire is, is that when I see God, I will know as I've been known. I will, I will recognize him because my heart throughout these years that God has given me has been cultivated in a growing familiarity with who he is. I, I shared you with the one professor of mine. He says there's a world of difference between a little kid who learns in Sunday school, God is good, and someone who's seen a lot of suffering and danger and has walked with God and says, you know what, God is good, right? And that's, that's our heart. The guy that I used to study, uh, John Barrage, Back in the day, uh, John Barry says the older he got, the more he just wanted to pray. He just wanted to spend time with God. I think that that may be what we're all all end up as I get older. And so what I like to do is I left you some questions for consideration. Um, what I was going to do is I was going to pray. And then I'll end the recording. And if you have some questions, we can talk about those uh, just for a few minutes. Oh, look at that, 827. I'll pray slowly over three minutes. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, uh, my prayer to you is going to be uh, from Numbers chapter six. So let's pray. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.